0: It's not about can we do it. It was more about how we do it. I always expected people to say no, and then when someone said yes, I was like, "What? (laughs) Actually, want to do this?" I just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole world is like, "What exactly have you smoked again?" This is the Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital-raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Today, I'm chatting with Jessica Christensen-Franks, the CEO and co-founder of Neighborlytics. Neighborlytics is a platform that provides data into the urban life of neighborhoods. The platform analyzes social data and turns it into valuable neighborhood insights, answering questions such as which cafes are most popular or where are the hubs of activity on the weekend? In this episode, you'll hear how Jessica got her idol to become her co-founder, how Neighborlytics leveraged their accelerator to broaden their potential investor pool, and how to hold the power in investor meetings. Let's dive in. Jessica, welcome to the show. I'm so delighted that we finally got to meet up. It's taken a while. Yes, me too. Fantastic to not see you in person, but see you virtually. Jessica, your company's Neighborlytics. What's your elevator pitch?
1: You know how the communities that we live in help shape our lives. So when you think about having a great day out with your family, you think about going to the cafe, going to the park, going to the local businesses that you interact with. Well, it's actually really hard for property developers to get that right, to really understand what makes neighbourhood tick. And so what Navalytics does is we measure the urban life of neighbourhoods. So we're tapping into social media feeds, Google map platforms, wikis like TripAdvisor and other things like that to understand what people love in local neighbourhoods and to help the government do a better job at managing them and also the property sector to understand how initiatives they invest in, like parks and open spaces, libraries, things like that, actually make a meaningful difference to our daily lives.
0: And I suppose COVID has brought that into the fall, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the really interesting thing about COVID is that before we were all locked in our homes for a year, lifestyle or understanding the local life of neighbourhoods was a nice to have. And we've seen over the last couple of years, the property industry and the government sectors really care quite deeply about local lives and understand what is happening in this hyper local way around local neighbourhoods. And you know, it used to be the case that it seemed okay for people to leave the place that they lived and travel 20 minutes to have amenity to have somewhere to go somewhere to socialize but when we're forced into lockdown that just wasn't the case anymore so there were huge areas of australian cities that were really vulnerable to social isolation and other things because the neighborhoods didn't already have in them those things that we need to support their lives
0: what's the big audacious dream for neighborlytics
1: We believe that urban life and the measurement of the human side of cities should be driving all city-making decisions, and so we want urban life data to be as common on city projects as using aerial photos used to be unusual to see an aerial photo of your property. That used to be a very unusual thing to be able to access. And now that there is aerial photography, so much of city making can be held to account around where the shade cover is, where the roads are, how the environment is degrading or otherwise. And we think urban life measurement will be the same thing. So if we can provide this dynamic real life data to city makers so they can see what's happening in local neighborhoods, we'll have better communities across the world and more human centered places to live.
0: Transformative what made you interested in urban design? Since I was a kid, I wanted to design zoos. <laughs> so it was just something about the thought
1: of doing scientific research into habitat and then creating design. I always was fascinated by designing, but as a problem-solving tool, so to research the habitat or research the needs and then create a physical environment that needed that note. So I realized as I grew up, that there's a lot more than just zoos that can be designed for understanding habitat and understanding human settlements is part of that. And I grew up living around the world. So my dad was in the army. And so I grew up outside Australia most of my life and lived in so many different communities. And so had the benefit of seeing that society is so different from place to place. And it's partly the spatial environment that does that. But also there's a lot more than that, that goes into creating community and economic systems. And so I was just fascinated by the system of cities. And that's, it was very natural to then go into urban design from there.
0: Prior to founding Nabolytics, you were running a design studio with your now co-founder, Lucinda Hartley. How did you come up with the idea for Neighbletics?
1: Nabolytics came directly from the problem that we were facing in co-design studio, where we were working as consultants in the city making sector Helping property developers and local governments understand their local places and give them advice on how to make those better for the local communities. And specifically at Co Design, we were helping community co design or co create their environment. So, not a top down approach, it was very much a bottom up approach, working with local communities to inspire them and facilitate them to create their own projects. And just time and time again, we couldn't very easily get to the heart of what the problem was with an initiative. Or what the actual change that had been created was and an example of that is we would go into a community work with the youth group run an incredible park rehabilitation program a music event all these things that the young people ran and that it was very difficult to actually measure the impact that that had and everybody there could tell you that the park had been fundamentally transformed by the way it was being used But because it often didn't leave behind physical infrastructure, we weren't necessarily building anything physical, it was very difficult to articulate exactly that impact and not just the immediate impact but the longitudinal impact. So running projects like that have this incredible halo effect over time to be able to, say, a more active park and an engaged youth community can have an incredible downstream effect on the local neighbourhood and we just didn't find that the tools that we had available, the government census data, even surveys, that they were really an effective way to understand that change, that we could see that because people's lives are digitised and everybody has a smartphone in their pocket, if not a couple. Our phone, our cars, our watches, our homes, everything is digitized. And we're now at this critical mass of using things like Facebook. So that that is actually a meaningful data set about how people live and what they do. And so we could just see that there was something in that as a data set. If you look at the Instagram feed for a park, you get a really great sense of what happens in that park. And that's where the idea came from, that if we could find a way to digitise that analysis, we could help city makers really understand the heart of communities without having to guess or miss some of the important changes.
0: Was Neapolitics a side gig to co-design? Co-design was a very
1: different type of business. It was a not-for-profit and we ran community projects. I mean, a day in the life of co-design was picking up eight tins of paint and working with kids to paint the road and wheel out donated plants and use recycled tyres to create seating. Like That's what we were doing day-to-day in co-design. And so neighborlytics initially felt like a tool to help amplify that work. But what we were seeing is a real shift in the property sector towards this more human-centred approach. And we couldn't scale co-design fast enough. We just couldn't find staff fast enough to grow at the rate of the demand. And so we could see tech as a way to help scale the impact we were trying to have. Initially, Nobilitx was an idea that was part of co-design and something we could see as a tool to help us have a better conversation and a broader conversation with the industry. But quite quickly, we realised we couldn't have a foot in each camp and we had to decide which was going to have the biggest impact. And I still love and I miss the days of painting the roads with teenagers. It was just the absolute best fun. But also we could see that if we could get Navalytics to actually scale, we can provide this tool to not only city makers across Melbourne, but also right around the world to really understand the
0: impact of their projects. So what was the inflection point in Navalytics that made you turn your attention full time to it?
1: We got in Navalytics into a startup accelerator called She Starts. At the time, we didn't understand what a startup was. So we had heard the words, of course, but we thought our other business was a startup because it was a new fund business. We didn't realize startup was a model of growth and that I hadn't thought of what opportunity that might provide us to think of it as that model. That, for me, was the turning point that we had been for a long time seeing co-design growing very quickly, but also sort of in an unsustainable way. When you get to a consultancy that's got 20 to 30 people, you end up at this tipping point where you need to have HR and all these extra overheads to make that team work, and it doesn't work as well as it once did without putting a lot more time and resources into that and suddenly getting to 100 people we could see that we could have a lot of impact very quickly with Nabolitics. And so when we were in the startup accelerator and they were saying to us in a potentially provocative way, where are you going to have your impact? Think of what you could do if you scale Nabolitics. And for me, that was the tipping point. I mean, a lot of people thought I was totally crazy. Why would I leave this dream job that I absolutely loved? To start a business, I have no qualifications to start in data analytics. If we could solve the problem or even just accelerate the conversation around solving the problem, we could have such an impact that we just couldn't have on a project-to-project basis as a consultancy.
0: So hold on, you went into She Starts not expecting to scale or even create analytics. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> the truth, since you're pushing, is... <laughs>
0: This is new to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, Lucinda and I were running Co Design Studio. She was taking parental leave and was living in Samoa with her partner. And as part of her being in Samoa, it's still involved with Co Design, but not as day to day. And she was applying for lots of opportunities to help us scale. And one of the things she applied for was She Starts. And so she calls me and says, oh, we got into this thing in Sydney. If we get through, we could get $100,000 and we can do some tech thing. But the idea we pitched to SheSats wasn't nebolytics, It was something else. I say, oh, yeah, I'll go to Sydney and do the thing. And so I go along to Sydney and I remember the moment halfway through the second session on the first day, going outside and calling Lucinda. And I remember this so clearly standing in the street, York Street in central Sydney, saying okay, Lizinda, we've got the wrong end of the stick. What we thought a startup was is not what it is. (laughs) Our idea is not a startup. We need to come up with something else. And I talked her through what a startup is. Like what if we had one amazing idea? We can get tech to make that auto-fulfilling and then that scales. And so we'd been using techniques of looking at Instagram and looking at Twitter to understand place Already at co design. So we pivoted mid boot camp into the Nebolytics idea. So, yeah, it was a very much to the horror of the other startups in the program who had been working with their ideas for a lot longer than one hour. Then that's what we ended up pitching
0: and then getting through
1: into the program from there.
0: Wow, that's a great story. I love it. What do you mean by human centered? So when you think about the way
1: cities have developed over time, we've been through a number of eras as civilization. We went through the agrarian civilization, where we became organised around agricultural times and all these sorts of things that probably, if we all cast our minds back to history from school, it's a thing we've learnt about. And then came the Industrial Revolution and then we had the big industrial times. So each of these eras have very significantly shaped the way that settlements have evolved. And so the industrialization led to much more, of course, factories and density and people living in cities. And then came the modernist time, which is from about the mid-50s, post-war, where there was a big movement around infrastructure, modernization, optimization of the city. And then in the last couple of decades, we've been moving out of this sort of post-modernist world into one that is much more about humans first. And so it's no longer acceptable to say, well, we have to put a six-lane highway there because it's faster for the cars. Sure, that flies sometimes, but actually there are human outcomes we need to be supporting and there's certainly a lot more understanding globally about the sorts of systems we need to have in our cities to support the everyday wellbeing of the people that live there and gradually, particularly in the developed economies, but certainly globally, city makers are moving much more into a sense of the city needing to support people's whole lives and support all their daily needs and not just provide shelter and work. We're seeing this come about in the way the property sector are treating their developments where they're not just seeing them as a housing project, they're seeing them as a communities project where they need to also bring in the schools and the parks and not only build the infrastructure, but make sure they actually become strong and effective communities and governments are doing the same thing. And also the consumers are expecting that too. And if nothing else, actually COVID has accelerated that expectation too. We work with lots of office developers who are now saying they need to help their tenants, what they're calling earn the commute. So if they're trying to get their office tenants employees back into the office to have a reason to have an office, what is there when they get there has to be good enough. It has to earn the commute so people actually want to come back. So again, it's no longer good enough to just have a place to sit and work. You need to have all of those other lifestyle things that people need like socialisation, connection, all those
0: even daily services, that sort of thing too. And what countries or cities are doing this really well, do you think?
1: It's a tricky one. Our sector are very excited about overseas precedents, particularly in Australia. We love the Scandinavian countries and talk a lot about Copenhagen. And certainly there's a lot of fantastic lessons that can be taken from a lot of the older European cities, particularly because their physical form is much more walkable to start with. They never had the opportunity to put giant highways through their city centre, cutting them off. So it's actually easier to make them human-centred now because they existed before there were cars, before there were highways. But that's not a particularly practical precedent for new world cities like we have in Australia that did exist when the car was around. And so it's all very well to say we want a European city centre, but we just don't have one. So it's perhaps more about the cities that are a great expression of local culture. I grew up in Asia and Ho Chi Minh City absolutely takes my breath away as a place that is so reflective of what it is to be Vietnamese. I didn't live there. I lived in Manila and Manila is almost the opposite in a way. It's so capitalist, very hyper-consumer driven, lots of highways, not much old city. You really can't see what it would be like to be Filipino in Manila. Other cities in the Philippines certainly, but not Manila. Whereas you go to Vietnam and to Ho Chi Minh specifically, and there really is an interesting and diverse local ecosystem of entrepreneurs and street vendors, and you can see the expression of the society within the city itself. So for me, those types of cities are my favourites.
0: Your co-founder, Lucinda Hartley, is a powerhouse, an AFR Top 100 Woman of Influence. How did you manage to meet Lucinda? She was running Codesign Studio, the previous business that we worked in. She had
1: been working to scale that company and was looking at hiring other staff, and I just had some shared networks with her. But I had, unbeknownst to her, I'd been following her career for a number of years, trying to figure out how a landscape architect had started this incredible not-for-profit, doing these incredible, really influential community projects and changing the property sector's conversation around what cities should be like and what the function of city makers are in the social aspects of cities. So I just got introduced to her through one of the board members from CoDesign when they were looking at hiring a 2IC there. We met at a rooftop bar and had a glass of rosé <laughs> and talked about the problems with the industry. And then she hired me. And now I realize that was quite a fluke because that wasn't a very long interview or a very particularly in-depth discussion, but obviously there was something about the opinions I shared with her on that hot summer's day that (laughs) led to her thinking I'd be a good business
0: partner. And that glass of rosé. Yeah, it helps maybe. (laughs) So how did that relationship then become a business partnership? She was the CEO at Design,
1: and so I came in as the managing principal, so working with her and she was a founder there, so clearly was the leader of that company. Although we're very similar in lots of ways, we've strangely had almost the same upbringing. She lived overseas as well all her life and she studied landscape architecture like me, but then got jaded with it and wanted to do more about city systems and... She was having her second child at Co Design and so went to Samoa on parental leave for that, took about a year off. And so I stepped up into the CEO role at that time. To her credit, she never helicoptered over me. She would have had every right to be checking in on how I was running the business that she had started and run for six years. And I hadn't had leadership experience at that level previously, but she stayed on as the chair during that time and she and I were built this incredible collaborative relationship looking at the direction of the company and speaking a lot about where it should grow and how we can have the most impact. And then when we started Nalytics, we very much wanted to do it together, but that this time we would be peers rather than she would be my boss. And so we have a lot of conversations about that gear shift and what it would be like. and certainly it's pretty intimidating going into business with someone who's been your idol for years. She's an absolute powerhouse and I feel very fortunate to work with her. We have an incredible dynamic where we have to often look at what are her strengths, what are mine, how do we divide and conquer, particularly as the business grows. It's very inefficient for the founders to be working on the same things together, even though we like to,
0: we really have to split them up and make sure we're each working to our strengths. Can you tell me how that breakdown works and how you came to that decision?
1: It's not a decision that we made and then have moved on from. It's something we always have to evolve and work on because the business always needs different things from us. And so we need to be always checking what does the business need from us at this point and who is best placed to do that. There are lots of different models of shared leadership. And what is actually a bit difficult for us is that shared leadership is very undervalued in business and often it can be thought of as a model that women default to when they don't want to work full time. And so it can be very easy for people to external to look at our model and think, oh, it's because they're mothers and they don't have they don't want to work full time. And so we're you know very conscious of that stereotype and we talk about it all the time and what we're going to focus on internally, but also how we present ourselves to the world. So, it's very important to us that we are always talking about ourselves as co founders and that when there's any type of media or, or public presence, that we very much talk about our shared leadership model. And that's a big part of who we are as a company and how we intend to present ourselves. But at the same time, internally, people need to actually make decisions and be accountable for stuff. So, you can't just decide on everything together. So, the model that we use. Internally, it was taken from the book called Rocket Fuel, which is a shared leadership model that talks about every great organization has two people at the top, the visionary and the integrator. And the visionary is the person who sets the direction and the integrator is the person who knows how to make it happen. Now, that can often be conflated with CEO and COO, but it's actually not that. It's much more about because the integrator is very, very strategic. It's not just the person who runs the HR. And so that's how we split Lucinda in the visionary role. So she looks at our growth and our sales so what direction we're going in next. And I run our product. That's the direction we're going in. What does our product need to do to fulfill that? How do we serve that to customers? And then also how do we make the team work to fulfill that
0: too? So I run the scrum process and all of the internal operations as well. And how did you decide who was best placed to take those roles? The book
1: itself has a quiz where you get scored on each of them which was quite confronting to see how we scored and in what ways we scored. But we've decided what the business needs is clarity. And so we decide to each take one of the roles and then to review it again in a a couple of years because we can switch and have a go at doing it the other way around. And so that was quite an easy decision to make. But what we need to do is not switch every week. We need to be focusing on how to be the integrator, design the machine, figure out the resourcing needs, the product direction, and then also... The growth, but we can come back and revisit that. And so we regularly, weekly talk about, are we working on the right things? What could we be working on? Is anything getting missed? That's the biggest fear, of course, is that you're actually missing something important and there's something falling between the cracks.
0: What about your working relationship generally? I've heard you both talk that you work really hard on your relationship, especially as dual leaders. What does that look like, working on the relationship?
1: It's a funny one because... It took us a number of years to become friends, and I don't mean that we didn't like each other. I just mean mostly. She was so intimidating and amazing. I didn't know how Mm -hmm. to like be a friend because that's a whole different thing when your lives are more integrated socially to just working together. So that's happened much more recently. So there were a number of years where we were colleagues and a great working relationship but didn't have a friendship as well particularly We talk a lot about how to work on the business and how to work in the business. So we're very intentional with the types of meetings we have and making sure we've got the right sequence of time to collaborate as founders on the business, as the major shareholders, driving the direction, being on the same page about what we're doing. But that's different from different administrative sign-offs, HR approvals, all that other kind of stuff in the business bits and pieces, which is a bit more like the chores, the things that you're not that into doing. You've got to separate those out. You can't let one contaminate the other. Also, we found it really hard during lockdown because everything felt like a chore and it was hard to have big ideas. And there's a lot of stress and uncertainty at the moment and particularly with lockdown again and the team had a lot of stresses and we just couldn't find our groove to alleviate that. And we realized we live really close to each other in Melbourne. So we initiated a once a week ideas walk because what we realized is that In lockdown, every meeting has an agenda. Every meeting has outcomes. Everything is formal. And what we were missing is that sitting next to each other banter of, oh, have you read this article? Have you seen that? What do you think about that? All of that incidental communication that is not minuted, that is not actioned, that isn't even written down, is actually so important to your relationship and so important to being able to have great ideas. And so just putting back in the calendar one hour a week and ideas walk where you're not allowed to take notes, you're not allowed to have actions, we just walk and talk about ideas for the business made a huge difference to us being able to collaborate. And so we now do it with other members of the team. So I'll probably keep doing it even though we're now back in the office. But again, that was an example of You can't just pretend there's no tension there. You can't just say, oh, well, everyone's stressed. We've got to move on with it. The business needs us to be working really well together. So we had to acknowledge that we weren't and say, okay, what are some ideas for how we can fix it?
0: That's a great idea. I love it. I'm going to borrow that one, I think. (laughs) Jess, I'd like to talk about your first significant cap raise with Navalytics, which was your seed round in 2019. How did you come to the decision that you needed to raise capital for Navalytics?
1: We were very intentional with the timing for that raise. So we were fortunate enough in the first couple of years of Nebolytics that our model had become sustainable. So we were bootstrapping our growth and we weren't burning money. We had broken even within a year. I mean, we had almost no staff, so that's quite easy to do when you've got two people on payroll. I think we weren't even paying ourselves yet. But we wanted to make sure, because Nebolytics exists, to have an impact, but also the data we make would be great for putting billboards in the right spot. We were very intentional that when we took investment, it was to help our growth impact agenda, not to grow at any cause. There were lots of investors that were interested in our business and our revenue and then saying, oh, I can introduce you to these billboard companies or this would be great for marketing. And so we wanted to make sure we had proven enough concept and enough of our own resolve around the direction we intended to go in so that when we took capital, we were taking it from the right people and we were taking it with a plan in place we knew we could execute. So we could have probably raised earlier, but we wouldn't have had that plan in place on what we wanted to do next. That's where it came from. We had a revenue target for ourselves so that we could get the valuation that we wanted to. And so we
0: just had to hit that just as we came into the raise too. So one of the most important parts of a cap raise is building up your investor network. Given that Neighbourlytics, being a tech startup was almost an accident. (laughs) How did you go about doing this, building your network of investors?
1: We leaned really heavily into the accelerator programs that we were part of. So She Starts was one of them. And we also became a venture for Sheo, which isn't equity capital, but another network of startup businesses. You hear it all the time when raising capital, but it's so much about who you know and getting warm introductions. And we were fortunate enough to have a bit of a running start by knowing enough people in the industry to start getting introductions. But we would have met with 100 investors. We met with a lot, a lot of people. It's a lot of time that then grows your network. I mean, the old adage, of course, of don't ask for money, ask for advice. And if you ask for money, you'll get advice. So we were asking very early, even before we were ready to open the round, meeting with as many people as we could, asking for their advice. And so that opened up a lot more introductions. So all of our largest investors in that round came from word of mouth introductions, which often they'd been intro to us by several people by the time we actually met them, which of course is a very warm way to walk into an investor meeting.
0: So what advice were you asking for?
1: It was very important that we had investors that were the right fit for us. So we needed to know what growth would look like to them, so what their expectations of a business like ours would be and what shape they would expect us to be in for us to be investable. The best technique we used during the raise and we're about to raise capital again and are doing the same thing now is to decide when the raise is going to open and then spend a few months before that speaking to people and saying, we're taking expressions of interest for a raise that is opening in three months. Talk to me about what I've got and what else you would want to see from me when we open for you to be interested. The people that are very interested tell you at that point in time, we really do want to participate, but it means that the nature of the conversation isn't one of critiquing the data room, it's one of what shape does the business need to be in and what do you want me to put in the data room so when we open, you can see what you need to see about the business and know the shape that we're in. And it also gives you time to achieve the things they want you to achieve. We hadn't hit our revenue goal yet to get the valuation we wanted, so we were able to do that in the lead up
0: to the raise itself. So Carol Schwartz, who is the Director of the Reserve Bank of Australia, led that round. How did you meet Carol?
1: We met Carol through word of mouth, so through a couple of different directions. So we were working very closely with Stockland at that time, and she was on the board of Stockland, so had come across us through our relationship with Stockland. Then at one point, Stockland were looking at investing, and so she'd come across us there. I'm originally from Brisbane, or one of the many places I've lived is Brisbane. An old contact from a university there that was a good friend of Carol's introduced us that way, and the first conversation Listener and I had with Carol, she was in the car, on the car phone, very informal, but this incredible conversation, perhaps only 20 minutes, a couple of months out before the round opened, speaking to her and her partner, Alan, about their interests in data and social impact in the property sector and what they were excited about, about what we do. And we could see right from that very beginning that she'd done her research on us and knew what we were about and had already understood where we were at market-wise, but also that they were very passionate about the
0: same stuff as us in property, but also the direction that we were trying to go as a company. So was the conversation with Carol in the car there, was that one of those ones where you were asking for advice as well? Yes. And what were you asking her? We were telling her
1: what we were trying to do with the business and how we could see ourselves disrupting. And we were asking for her feedback on that. And we were saying, we're really ambitious. This is where we intend to take this company. What do you see as the opportunities? Who are the players we should be speaking to? Her having a relationship with Stockland as she did and many big property players, she can see the industry from a perspective that we can't. And so her advice on the direction we should be going in was certainly is just as valuable today as it was all those years ago when we had the car phone conversation. And at the time, they were talking to us about work they were doing on measuring social capital and thinking of the role of data in understanding social impact. And a number of years ago, we were at the very beginning of that conversation as an industry. And so it was very exciting to meet other people that really shared those values who were probably talking about other challenges and frictions with that whole movement about why it was so difficult and how to influence the sector.
0: When they started doing due diligence on Abletics, what was the most difficult question that Carol and her team asked for you?
1: Working with Truella was an incredibly positive experience. Even the difficult questions weren't uncomfortable in that way. The things I hadn't fully considered and therefore were perhaps the more difficult were around the good lever, bad lever clauses for Lucinda and I needed to exit the business. When you're starting a business and certainly looking at getting capital, the last thing on your mind is leaving the business. Of course, I'm not going to leave the business. Why would I leave the business? But of course, if you haven't talked through all of those scenarios beforehand, you can end up in a situation where everybody's got different expectations of what that would look like. And clearly the investors at such an early stage business wanted to put clauses on us to tie us into the business. That's totally understandable. But at the same time, Lucinda and I hadn't yet had a conversation with each other about what good or bad lever clauses look like. You find yourself having conversations like, what if I get hit by a bus and don't die?" Does my husband get the shares? Okay, in what circumstance does he get the shares or does he not? Okay, what if I get hit by a bus but then I just decide I can't work full-time anymore and can't stay on as a CEO and we had to talk those through with each other and, of course, with you helping us through that and talking to us about what is normal and to be expected and fair but then also being able to talk those back to our investors and say this is where we're trying to get at with that clause. What are your expectations? Difficult
0: questions, different issues to discuss, aren't they? But they do happen. We, I remember there was
1: one point where I said to one of the investors, Lucinda and I think a good lever clause could include spending a number of years in the company but then deciding we need to work somewhere else because we don't want to tie anyone into the business that doesn't want to be here. Like That's the worst employment decision you could make. And also we'd work for a number of years without any salary. So the shares were part sweat equity from that perspective. Our shares, I said to one of the investors, I can't remember which one it was, that clause is there because we think that we should have the right to decide that I don't want this job anymore and walk away and retain some of the shares, not all of them, but some of them, and go have a job in the mountains in Byron Bay. And the investor said, that is specifically what I want to stop happening. And it wasn't a disagreement, but it was this moment of clarity of like, yeah, this is exactly the conversation we need to be having about your expectations and my expectations I don't know why, but I just hadn't really thought about it from that point of view before. I was thinking of myself as an employee who'd started something great and I wasn't thinking about it from the perspective of what the investors needed from us.
0: How long did the entire cap raise process take, Jess?
1: There was that sort of informal talking part for about three months, so October to December, and then we formally opened the round in January and then formally closed it mid-February but didn't receive all the money in the bank till the beginning of July, of course. Because it was our first capital raise and we didn't have a suitable shareholder deed and everything needed to be created from scratch, we had commitment from virtually everyone within six weeks, but then many, many months of actually dotting all the I's and crossing the T's before the money landed in the bank.
0: Once the process got started, how did the day-to-day business side look? Was there any time to do day-to-day business?
1: Yeah, I'm a bit terrified about that question because we're about to start again. I mean, we really didn't get to spend much time in the business at all. At the time, our product was very simple and our customer relationships were very simple and repeatable. And so we didn't need to be involved that much day-to-day to keep everything moving along. We needed to be there for the team, but just being around in the morning or the evening outside investor meetings was enough for that. But it is a huge burden, a huge stress and a huge bandwidth that raising takes. And it did require both of us. It just doesn't work to split up the meetings and take one each, or you just end up always having to catch up on everything. And so we really had to be doing everything at the same time together, doing all the meetings together and all the negotiations together. So yeah, Takes up a lot more, twice as much time as you anticipated it'll take up.
0: Did life at home look different during this time? Yes. Well,
1: I didn't have a baby then, and now I do. So back then, it was very easy for day to day life to overflow into the evenings and not notice. 100% that would have happened, that weekends and evenings were taken up by work, and that would have been the catch up time of the things I should have been getting done that day. I would have been doing in the evenings and in the night. But this time round, I won't have that luxury the way that I used to because I now have a one year old. So he won't stop teething just because
0: I'm doing a capital raise. What's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or are embarking on the cap raising journey?
1: It's so important to hold the power in the conversation. And as a startup, particularly early stage, there is so much to be intimidated by when raising capital. There's so much that you don't know and it's very easy to feel grateful for any attention an investor pays. Anything that you can do to hold the power in the conversation is worth doing. And what I mean by that is Choose investors that already have aligned values to your company so that there's something really specific to talk about, whether it's social impact or the property sector or whatever it might be. that Those were the areas for us. So you've got some actual meaningful content to talk about with them and see what it would be like to work with them. So you're in that discussion almost as a peer rather than going in as someone who wants something from them but also techniques like having a discrete raising period that is a matter of weeks and saying we are opening on that date, I'm not providing the finances, the data room, anything until that date again is a way of holding the control and also standardising what everybody gets. Otherwise, you end up with all these ad hoc requests from people about all of the different types of information that they want and you can just never, never end it. Also, just trying to remember that what you're entering into with them is like a marriage. It's so easy to feel grateful or to feel flattered that there's interest paid, but at the end of the day, you're selling a piece of your business to somebody else or another organization. And if you don't go into that relationship feeling like a peer, you'll forever have that power mismatch in the relationship moving forward. And that would be very difficult over time when things start to go wrong, when you need the board or the investors to help make a decision or to provide more capital for something else you need to do. You really need to have that peer-to-peer relationship.
0: Fantastic. That's excellent advice. Jess, I'd like to finish off with what I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. I've remixed this from some of my favourite interviewers. What's your favourite work from home, lunch or snack? Oh,
1: I don't even eat when I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> Instant coffee.
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's a great book that you've read recently, if you have time to read with one-year-old?
1: Yeah, no, I do audiobooks. So The Phoenix Project, I love about ops, DevOps.
0: And a documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend?
1: Oh, I love 7am, a a daily news podcast by Schwartz Media.
0: What's the most useful good or service that you've bought in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less?
1: Oh, gosh, I just had a baby, so everything is baby stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it terrible to say the app that plays noise so my
0: baby will sleep? Awesome, love it. (laughs) White noise app. <laughs> yeah. I paid $26 for that thing. I'm sure you can just get them on YouTube. But... <laughs> yeah. That would be helpful to so many people. So what's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now?
1: I was hoping you weren't going to ask this. I don't listen to music. I just listen to podcasts. I'm just about <laughs> economics and news podcasts.
0: <laughs> Jess, when you think of the word successful, who do you think of and Why?
1: I think of my business partner, Lucinda, because she has, from the beginning of her career, found a problem that needs solving that she's so passionate about and everything about her work to date has been around solving that problem and really diving in and being passionate about it and having huge influence in doing that. And to me, getting to do what you love, knowing what you love and being
0: effective in that, that's success to me. Awesome. Jessica, this has been lots of fun. We'll have all of your contact details for Neighborlytics on our show notes. So happy that we finally got to connect. Good luck with Neighborlytics. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for you.
1: Thank you so much, Marlene. Great to chat.
0: You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you behind the scenes into founder stories about capital raising. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru, a product from the expert team at MetasLaw create kick-ass capital-raising term sheets with Termsheet Guru and learn how to negotiate term sheets with confidence. To find out more, head to the website termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang, and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising story.